Now we will turn to the word of the Lord. We'll read from 1 John chapter 2, starting in verse 28, and then we'll finish in chapter 3, verse 3. Again, that's 1 John 2, 28 to 3, 3. You can find that starting on page 1900 in the Pew Bible in front of you. 1 John 2, 28 to 3, verse 3. Before we read from the word, let's pray to the Lord for his blessing upon us. God, we come to your perfect word, which reveals to us the lavish love with which you have loved us. And as we turn to this perfect word, which you have given to us, we ask that you would use it to transform our hearts and even today to encourage us as the apostle would have us to be encouraged. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First John 2, starting in verse 28, And now, dear children, continue in him, that is Christ, so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. As we come to the close of this second chapter and begin the beginning of the third chapter, we can recall how it is that John has brought us to this point thus far. If we wanted to summarize the letter of 1 John, at least the first two chapters, we could do it really in three parts. And those three parts would be three tests. John has, John has written to his church because they have gone through some measure of distress. And the distress comes because a lot of people, it seems, have left John's churches off to, off to go form their own church, their own religion of some kind. And these people have claimed to have a, a greater, a higher knowledge, a, a super spiritual, extra special Christian knowledge that makes you to be extra Christian or perhaps to be the only Christians. And so naturally those who were left behind would have been plagued with some measure of doubt. Are they right? When they left us behind, did they leave, really, for a new and better truth? Was it good for them to leave? I mean, they do seem to have extra knowledge. And they do seem to be more approved of by the world, as they almost certainly would have, as they looked a lot more like the world. And there sure were a lot of them. So John writes to shore up the faith of those who stayed faithful to him and to his gospel. And he writes to them that they will hold firm to the faith that he delivered to them, and that they would not run after some counterfeit God and fake Christ who cannot save. But John writes here in these first couple sections to answer a question, which is, 
How can you know who the real Christians are? That was the question that plagued them. Are these, are these who have left, are these separatists, are they the real Christians, or are we the real Christians? Because we both can't be real Christians. We have very different understandings. Are they right, or are we right? And John gives three tests by which they can know that they are the real Christians. The first is the moral test. He says that those who walk in darkness, those who walk in sin, do not have the truth. Those who walk in darkness do not have fellowship with God, but it is those who walk in the light, who walk in righteousness. They are the children of God. And so these fake Christians, they walked in the darkness, while John's Christians were trying to walk in the light. That's the first test, the moral test. The second test is the social test. That is that real Christians love other Christians. Christians love their brothers and sisters. And again, these false teachers were failing because they did not love John. And just think of this. John was the best friend of Jesus. How could you hate John and claim to actually love Christ. So they failed on the second test as well. Then there's the third test, which was the doctrinal test. Anybody who denies that Jesus is the Christ is not a Christian. Anybody who denies that Jesus came in the flesh is not a Christian. You have to believe that Jesus is both God and man, never one at the expense of the other, not mingling them together, but both at the same time equally God and man, and the false teachers denied that as well. And so John is saying to his church, you are the real Christians. You have passed test one and test two and test three, and they have failed them all. Be confident that you belong to God. Now in verse 28, John cycles back to that first test, the moral test. Look at that verse with me again. And now, dear children, remember this is a term of affection. John was their evangelist, their pastor. And now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. John here is continuing his thought from verse 27. There he had said, remain in him, remain in Christ. Don't go running after the fake Jesus who can't save. Remain in the real Jesus. And here we see, continue in him. I'm not particularly sure why the authors of the NIV chose to use two different words, remain and continue, because John just used one word. It's the same word. John is continuing his same point. ESV says, abide in him and abide in him. John is is moving forward to the same train of thought, but he does shift gears a little bit here because so far he has focused on past and present. But now in verse 28, he shifts and begins looking at the future. And here, John begins to introduce a new incentive. The Bible works with incentives, right? You go to the fifth commandment, honor your father and mother so that it may go well with you and may, you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Why should you honor your father and mother? Well, because it's right, yes, but also because God blesses 
you when you obey him. Well, that's what we see here. Life works on incentives. John is going to give an incentive. I I remember I had an economics teacher who began a lecture, and he began the lecture with saying, I'm going to change your life, and perhaps I am going to haunt you for the rest of your life. And in in a certain respect, that was true, because he, he taught the concept of opportunity costs. And he told us that whenever you do something, you are choosing to do that something and refusing to do anything else you may have done with that something. So think about it like this. When you buy one house, that's exciting. But you think you chose in that moment not to buy any other house in the entirety of the world that was for sale at that time. That was the opportunity cost. And so John is coming to these John is coming to these Christians in his churches, and you're saying there is an opportunity cost to following Christ. I recognize there is a cost to following Christ. What I'm telling you is that it is worth it to follow Christ. And there was a cost for these believers. There was a cost in that they were on the outside looking in of society. They were going to face greater persecution. They were already facing, undoubtedly, some persecution. And as these people had left to go live these licentious lives which they were living, the cost was not sharing in their licentiousness with them. And so John is going to answer, answer their question, why should I follow Christ instead of doing anything else I could do with my life? Why should I devote myself to Christ instead of whatever else in my life I might otherwise be devoted to? So John is going to tell them why it's worth it. And he says simply that we should look to the future, that we should look to the last day, to the great day, the day of the Lord. And we should look to that day and we should recall and perhaps even know, we should know that when Christ returns, there will be two possible responses. The first will be shame, and the second will be confidence. Remember that John has said already that Jesus is in the light, and he's already said that God is light. And light has a revealing effect. You know, in the, in the nighttime, when we have youth group in the winter months, when it's dark out so early, and you, you walk into the sanctuary, and you're going to shoot somebody with a Nerf gun. Don't tell anybody. You're going to shoot somebody with a Nerf gun. All the lights are off. It's very dark in here. But right now, all the lights are on. And the light pours in the windows. Because you can see now because of the light. The light has a revealing effect upon whatever it is that it reveals. And so it is with our lives. When Christ returns, He returns with a blaze of glory. And in that blaze of glory, everything in our lives is revealed. That is, I think, a terrible thought in its own right. And all of our shame, and all the shameful things we've done, all the shameful thoughts that we have had will be revealed. And when these things in our lives are revealed, we see them as ugly. We see this in our own time. There's a candidate for the United States Senate, 
and it just came out, it was revealed that he had had an affair. He had had an affair with the wife of an army veteran, an officer in the United States Army, and he's running for the Senate, and now this affair is front-page news. That is shameful. And you can bet he's highly embarrassed by it, because when it comes to the light, we see it as other people see it, and we see it as ugly. And when Christ returns, all ugliness will be revealed. And when that happens, it will be terrifying. Because he comes not meek and lowly, born in a manger, but he comes in glory with a proverbial sword coming out of his mouth with which to strike down the nations. And John, in Revelation, shares what the Lord revealed to him about just one response to the coming of the Lord in Revelation 6, verses 15 to 17. When Jesus comes in this judgment, we read, Then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and the rocks, Fall on us and hide us from the face of Him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of the wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Shame and shrinking, that is the response of a sinner to the coming of Christ. Do you see how dramatic this is? That kings and princes, rulers of the earth, would rather have mountains fall on them than have to face the face of Christ on the great day. That is a terrible thing. But there's a second response. And the second response is one of confidence. And I suspect that if you know yourself well at all, you will think to yourself, that is not going to be my natural response to the coming of Christ. So why do I even need to move past the first response of shame to even think about the second response of confidence? How can this be? Well, John will come back to that, but first he moves us into verse 29. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Now, here's a repetition of a repetition of a, a previously made statement that he has made, a previous theme. Righteousness is the, is the theme. God is righteous. Those who belong to God are righteous. You know, there's, there's an old saying that says, you are what you eat, right? If you eat healthy, you'll be healthy. If you don't, you won't. There's some truth in that, I suppose. Or we might say, biblically, you are what you worship. If you worship holy things, you will be holy. If you worship unholy things, you will be unholy. Think of the Canaanites who lived all around Israel. They worshipped gods of war and of sex, and they were depraved, and they were violent. Well, those who worship a god of righteousness and of holiness, we can expect to be themselves holy and righteous, if not as righteous and holy as God is, at least in some respect mirroring His righteousness and His own holiness as we seek to be like Him. And John says, anyone who is born of him will be righteous. 
and do righteousness. This, this is something that sets apart the Christian God from so many other gods, particularly the gods around John's church. The pagan gods almost always are themselves very human. And oftentimes the pagan gods give fertility and new births and crops and rain all by their own acts of sensuality. Two deities come together and it brings rain and children. But not our God. There's no cooperation in our God. Our God is holy. He is set apart. He is not like us at all. When God causes someone to be born again, he does it by himself. We might say that it's a monergistic work. I impressed you last week with antediluvian. Now this week it's monergistic. Mono means one. He is the only one who works. And because he is the one who brings new life, and by himself, those who are born of him should bear the family resemblance. But of course the family resemblance is, is not, oh, he has his daddy's eyes, or he has his mama's nose. The family resemblance is, he has his father's righteousness, and he has his older brother's faithfulness. And if you are a part of the family of God, if you are a child of the father, do we need to have fear when the older brother comes? Well, I should say not, and that's what we get to then in verse 1. How great is the love the Father, the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Go back to the question we ended verse 28 with. How can it be that when Christ returns in all of His glory, the judge of all the earth, the Holy One, when He comes to judge, how can it be that we would be able to stand in confidence in the light of His radiance? How can that be? Well, there's a one-word answer for it, and the one-word answer is God. God can do all things. With God, all things are possible. God can raise the dead. God can bring sinners out of their sin and into righteousness. God can do those things. We can't do those things. If you are sitting here today truly converted, having truly trusted in Christ, you are not here because of you. You are here because of God. You're a child of God because of God. But notice here what John does. He includes himself. In this. Oftentimes it's dear children and you, but now it's we, that we should be called children of God. He may be an apostle, he may have been an evangelist, he may be one of the greatest men who ever lived, but he is still himself together with us, a child of God. So he includes himself by saying, We. So how can it be that we would be confident that when Christ returns, we will not be those who cry out for the rocks to fall on us? It is simply because we are children of God. And God, as a perfect Father, perfectly loves His children. And we are His children through faith in Christ. 
And he, if he has already chosen to adopt us, will he change his mind? No, but God doesn't change. And if he has already chosen to love us, he will love us all the way through to the end. And this is why our hope is not in ourselves, praise the Lord, but in him. I love those words right in the middle of the verse. And that is what we are. It's a matter of fact. That is what we are. We are children of God. You know, some facts are different than others, right? We understand what a fact is. It's just something that is, and in this case, it's a fact that is true. And, but there are some facts that are boring facts, and there are some facts that are thrilling facts. You can think of a, a boring fact. The capital of Illinois is Springfield. Right? You, you learn that in school. You learn the states and the capitals. But nobody gets thrilled about Springfield. <laughs> I definitely do not get thrilled about Springfield or almost anything that happens in Springfield. But it's just a fact. It's a normal fact. But there are some facts that thrill us. You think, for instance, of the Grand Canyon. You might say, well, it's a hole in the ground. Well, that is true. The Grand Canyon is a hole in the ground. Nobody can dispute that, but when you think of the Grand Canyon, when you think of that hole in the ground, you don't just think, oh, it's a hole in the ground. You think, it's grand, it's great, it's majestic, it is glorious. Sometimes you feel facts more than other times. And this, this, that is what we are. That's a feel-it fact. That's a feel the lavish love of God pouring over me fact. You can, you can imagine yourself standing under a waterfall. I, though I, I've said under waterfalls and it hurts more than you think. So you can, you can imagine standing under a soft waterfall and just feeling the love of God, our Heavenly Father, coming down upon us. This is what John is saying, and that is what we are. Can you feel His love for you. And then we want to ask a question, don't we? How can this be true? Can you even believe it? I wouldn't believe it. Except that God says it. And if God says it, I must believe it. But the world does not know us. The world does not know who the true children of God are they don't know God. And because they hate God, so often they hate His church. But you see, here's that word know again. This is, this is so much about who knows the truth. And John says, these people who have left us behind, they don't even know who the sons of God are. How would they know who God Himself is? How could they know God, if they don't even recognize his children. But we are children of God. And John picks up on this very similar theme that Paul uses elsewhere, Romans 8, 17. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. We are already children, but what we will be has not yet been seen. And we see that in verse 2. Dear friends, now we are children of God, 
and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's a a major theme that runs through the New Testament, and it's the theme of the already and the not yet. There are some things that are already true, and there are some things that are not yet true. For instance, the kingdom of God has already come, but it has not already come yet in full. We are already righteous in Christ, but we are not yet perfectly righteous in Christ. There are these things that are partially true. We might say that we've already received the appetizer, but the main course and the dessert have not yet been served. You know, a few weeks back at uh, Mel Porter's funeral, I had opportunity to reflect a little bit in the message about our often misplaced optimism. I think especially of graduations and these these kind of important moments in our lives. You hear these platitudes that, if you really think about them, aren't all that true at all. You'll hear things at graduations that sound nice, like, you can change the world. Or you can do anything you set your mind to. You really can't change the world all that much. Not many of us are going to grow up to be Julius Caesar. You're not going to be remembered in history. Maybe a little bit, but not all that much. Or you can do anything you set your mind to. No, you can't. You can't even do most of the things you would set your mind to. We, we say these things, but they're not really true. And sometimes you, you hear the future is bright. Most of the time it's not. But it is for us. And that's what here John is saying. The future is bright for us. We are children of God. And we bear some resemblance to Christ already. But there is much more still to come. And one day we will be like him. And here John has in mind perfection. Specifically moral perfection. That as Jesus is not a sinner and cannot sin, so one day we will no longer be sinners and we will not be able to sin. Can you imagine a life where you cannot, you literally cannot sin? That would be amazing. And here John says you will be like that. But it's not just that we will be like Christ in moral purity. But we will be like Christ. You see this theme picked up elsewhere as well. Paul says in Philippians 3, verses 20 and 21, But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables Him to bring everything under His control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like His glorious body. Our bodies will be like His body. I think, of the, I think of the transfiguration when Jesus is revealed in the fullness of His glory and when that light shines in that moment, it is a blindingly glorious light. And we will be like Him as He is. He will transform our lowly bodies to be like His own glorious body. We might say that we will be like Him, body and soul. 
John is talking about incentive. We started with the question, why remain in Christ? I think he's given a lot of incentive. Because the difference between remaining in Christ and leaving Christ is the difference between glowing and being glorious with Christ and wanting the mountains to crush you. There is an eternity of difference between remaining in Christ and leaving him behind. The saying goes, good things come to those who wait. So it is most definitely true with the Christian. And that brings us into the third verse of chapter 3. Everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. It's not an instruction. It's just a statement of fact. Everyone, everyone here, we see everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself. Those who have hope look to the future. And when they see a pure future, they seek to live in that purity. Everybody who has that hope, hope is a powerful thing. When you, when you are suffering from something, if there is hope that it will one day be over, it is much easier to bear than if we suffer from something having no hope that it will be over. Hope is a powerful thing, and the Christian has hope. And our hope is in the love of God. I had opportunity to do Zach and Courtney's wedding yesterday, and we picked from that wedding. The passage was Psalm 126. And the third verse, one of my, one of my favorites, the Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. And if God has already done good things for us, do we not have reason to hope, a sure and certain hope, that He will continue to do good things for us? And if we have that sure and certain hope, then we live in a way that says we have that hope. This all works together. John's churches needed encouragement in two ways. They needed to be able to know who the real Christians were and that they were the real Christians. And they needed to know that it was worth it to stay in Christ. And the incentive that John gives them is that we would look to the last day. That we would see our hope in the last day. And that we would desperately desire that when Christ comes, He comes for us and not against us. Thus we remain in Christ with the hope of eternal glory, shining like Christ in the presence of God. Let's pray together. Oh God, when, when Christ returns, we want Him to be for us and not against us. We want Him to come for us. We want to be led to Him like a bride is led to a groom, being led as a church to Christ, who is the groom. We want to be loved by Him. 
And we do not want the rocks to fall on us. So God, give us the courage, even in our day, where it becomes more difficult, more costly to follow Christ. Even in our day, give us the courage and the encouragement and the wisdom to know that it is always worth it to follow Christ. Lord, encourage us with these truths. Minister to our hearts. Many of us need encouragement just the same as John's churches needed it. So meet us in our moment of need as you met those saints so many centuries ago. Give us a gift of stronger faith and of greater hope. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.